love you too, brother. I, I am so excited to be here. You know, and I, I should just say I'm so thankful. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ozan Farron, and I guess the best way to describe it is I'm just a poor, unworthy sap that God chose to bring here for a, a time. And I was naive enough to think I was going to come here and help something out, only to realize that I've just been mentored and coached in this ministry of, you know, pastoral ministry and leadership in the church. And God has just done some wonderful things outside of these walls as well as he continues to work in me as well as the church. And so I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for all the relationships that I've built over the years and many of these familiar faces around the table. It just It's such a joyful prospect for me. So I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful uh, to be able to bring the word this morning. Um, just a little bit of history. Chris Gorman is actually how I got connected here, and he's a brother of mine and had such a large impact on me. And then I, I was also introduced to Nick kind of before, before I came here through a sermon that he preached at an annual meeting for the NAB conference, and my mind was just blown at how God had used him so mightily, and I thought to myself, I want to be like that guy someday. <laughs> and so, as, as you know, just you can't predict this stuff. God formed that fellowship, that bond, and I met with him even very recently, and just a, a bond of unity, wonderful fellowship we enjoy together, and I'm just, again, I'm very thankful. I, I hadn't got, had a chance to meet Jack, Jake uh, until uh, recently at the NAB conference, and he's just a quality man, too. Just God has just been so wonderful. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I'm just so thankful. And so we are, we are going to be taking a break from the usual. Uh, I know you all have been going through Matthew. This is another, another thing I want to mention briefly. I, I could spend all day talking about all the wonderful things God is doing at Timberline. I, I used to as a young Christian, and, and maybe some of you are in this place where you have these hero uh, preachers you know, out there, and I would oftentimes turn to those men who preached and are really well-known like globally to really get fed the word, and something has happened over the course of like the last five years where those men are those folks that are in the circle of men that I get to enjoy fellowship with regularly, and so I oftentimes will come to YouTube channel for, for this congregation and listen to the word being spoken. I'm very thankful for that, that I don't have to go much further than the, the rubbing of my shoulder with other men to find the word being preached in faithfulness and with passion. And so we're going to be taking a break from that, and we're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning. And would you please stand with me for the reading of the gospel? John chapter 7, I know that Timberline values the word. This is why we're here. There, there, this is going to be the most important part of our morning is the reading of the scripture. This is the holy word of God. And we're going to be reading out of verse 37 in chapter 7. Rivers of living water. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the living God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be with the men that are out there enjoying this fellowship, the elders and pastors of this community, that you would uh, continually grow that bond of fellowship and unity. We know that 
in order for the church to shine, the leaders of this community must be one in Christ so that the church can visibly be seen as one in Christ. And so may you be with their devotions. May you be with their time of fellowship together. Lord, and may this be a time of reflecting on how awesome and mighty you are. And Lord, we open up our time to you in the word this morning, asking that you would come and infiltrate us by the work of your Holy Spirit, who we're going to be speaking about this morning, that you would illuminate the words that are going to be spoken, that we would have ears to hear, we have eyes to see, that we would, we would hear clearly those words that were spoken out of Jesus' mouth many, many years ago. Lord, we lift this time up to you now, and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the Gospel of John this morning, and I do want to provide just a brief context. This is actually a really good one to take a break from because John takes the guesswork out of why he wrote the Gospel. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, John had these words to say. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but... These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, he didn't record every detail of the words that Jesus spoke, but he does give us insight into why this letter was written. This, this book was written of the gospel account. It's because he wants people to know that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, he's one with God, and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. I mean, he just sums it up so beautifully in just a few sentences by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what we are going to be looking at this morning. Jesus has been very intentional. He's been intentional about the way that he reaches out to people. He's been intentional about in his timing. He's been intentional about the message that he's preaching. And so there's this evangelistic undertone that's taking place. We see Jesus asking people, what is it that you're seeking? With obviously the intent that you should be seeking God. And in that you would be seeing Jesus in Christ as God. But we're only a seventh of the, you know, a seventh chapter in, and, and there is no question that even up to this point he's invited those who you would even least expect. We might expect, for instance, that he would invite Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, and but he goes beyond that and he invites the unnamed Samaritan woman, the enemy of the Jews. So you've got the ruler of the Jews on one spectrum, Jesus invites, and then you've got the unnamed enemy of the Jews, this unnamed Samaritan woman who historically would be an enemy of that culture. And not only on the individual basis, but Jesus invites us on a very group and holistic oriented basis. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? He invites people. He says, I am the manna who came down from heaven. He describes himself as the bread of life. And in the series of events that unfold up to this point, Jesus, like I said, has been very intentional he has been deliberate with his timing. He's been deliberate with his message. And we are now arrive at another grand invitation from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This time, however, it's not just any people that Jesus is inviting. This is a synagogue. This, this is in the setting of worship that Jesus is inviting people. So hopefully this has a very meaningful uh, time for us this morning as we evaluate what that looks like for us as we're being invited as God's children. It's about late September, it's early October, it's during a special festival of the Jews, and in order to really set the foundation for what Jesus is trying to communicate, I'm going to cast you into the culture of that time, I'm going to do my best in our limited time to express what is happening with this festival, and why that's so essential to Jesus' invitation. This is a feast, oftentimes it's known as the Feast of Tabernacles, you may have heard it as Feast of Tents, 
or Feast of Booths or the Feast of Ingathering. Any of those, you know, combination would all work because they're all described in the same way. And this was a feast that was instituted by God, and it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16. I'm not going to go into the details of that. And it's expanded in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 43. And so if you wanted to read more into the details of that, that's where you would go. And this is unquestionably one of the most festive feasts of the Jewish culture. When you look at the activities of the weeks that were going on, not only was it instituted by God, but people were very excited to make their way into Jerusalem to celebrate this very feast. Many around the country, both within Israel as well as on the borders and outskirts, would come in to experience this festival, and Jerusalem would swell to about three times its normal size, and so it becomes a really opportune moment, doesn't it, for people to show up and present the gospel. It's just a wonderful setting. And so Jesus has every reason to make his way there. But there is one essential problem that takes place here. Chapter 7 opens up with an announcement that Jesus is out for arrest. There's a warrant that's been placed in his arrest. It's actually recorded in verse 1. We're told that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. And, you know, you would, you would think that maybe it's just this uh, secret thing that's happening, that the leaders of the Jews are conspiring against Jesus because there's a sense of jealousy that's taking place, that Jesus might take their place. But we read also in verse 25 that it's not just the leaders, but it's the general public. Look in verse 25. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? In other words, they're saying those leaders, isn't this the guy that the leaders are seeking to kill? So not only is it knowledge among the leaders, but it's knowledge among the general public who are there recognizing that Jesus is the one that they're seeking to kill. These temple officers were dispatched by Jewish leaders with the goal of putting him under arrest, running him through trial, and ultimately putting him to death. We know that eventually they will succeed in doing that, but again, it's not going to be on their timeline. We're only in chapter 7. There's over 20 chapters to go, or, or over 20 chapters in this gospel account. It's going to be according to God's divine purpose, not according to man's purpose. Proverbs chapter 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 that the crucifixion of Jesus was by the hands of men, yes, but it was also according, listen to this, the definite plan of God. You see, Jesus was in Galilee at this point, and he's contemplating whether he should come back to Judea in order to experience this festival. He had to go to Galilee initially for various reasons. There was this, uh, again, this this. A notion that Jesus is going to be taking their place. The leaders were actually out to get him before he moved to Galilee and, and performed certain uh, ministry activities there. And now there's this feast coming, and he wants to come enjoy the feast, but he can't show up right away. And so he, instead he chooses to, to come halfway into the feast. And he has that option, right? He could stay in Galilee. And we know that wherever Jesus is, the gospel is going to be presented in clarity. It's going to be presented in truth. It's going to be presented in grace. And so he could have stayed in Galilee, and I think many people would have been impacted by that. Or he can go to where the crowd is. He can go to where his life is going to be at stake and at risk. 
And I know that there are many in this room who are at a fork in the road, so to speak, right? You're wondering, where is it that God wants me? Should I go here or should I go here? Should I make this decision or should I make this decision? And we just want God to audibly speak to us, don't we? God, can't you just tell me what it is that I'm supposed to do? Some of the hardest decisions are the ones where you have to make a decision between a right choice and a right choice. And I'm convinced that Jesus, just being the example that he is, he lifted this up to prayer in God, and he contemplated what it is that the Holy Spirit would have of him. And he intentionally decided that he's going to show up in the middle of this feast and participate. And he does this with a lot of intentionality. He does this with the people that are there in mind. And if you're following along with your notes, we're going to be looking at this. You know, we don't really need to have these groups, but it helps just to follow along with uh, you know, as, as we go through this, um, for, for thought's sake, there's an intentionality of Jesus, right? We're going to look at what this feast is, what, what's going on with this feast, why it's so important for Jesus to come and present the gospel. And then we're going to look at this glorious invitation. It's one of the greatest invitations in all the Bible, in my opinion. And then we're going to look at what impact that has on us as God's people. And so will you look with me first at the intentionality of Jesus, you see, in order to understand the intentionality, we must understand the significance of this particular feast. They're about halfway through this week-long feast, and Jesus arrives unexpectedly, and in verse 14, we hear that he's teaching, and people are amazed at what it is that he's teaching. He's building up this reputation before God and God's people. And this feast is a very important one because... It's one that represents Jesus himself. I, th this, is, this is another mind-blowing thing, right? When God's people show up to the temple, they're showing up to the temple to worship. And that temple is a representation of Jesus himself. Remember in chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And we knew that he was speaking about his body. So I mean, it's just a wonderful thought to think Jesus is going to the temple that's all about him, I mean, it's all about, like, we don't get to say that. I'm going to go to the temple, and, you know, guess what? That temple's all about. Jesus gets to show up and say, it's all about me. And so he's going to the temple, which is a representation of him, to expose what it's all about. I mean, what a wonderful thought. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be the people there seeing Jesus show up and preach the way that he preached. Any preaching by Jesus is wonderful. I mean, we, we, we question preachers in our day. Are they telling the truth? And what do I need to research? When Jesus spoke, no question. You don't have to dig into the scriptures. You can just totally know that the words coming out of his mouth is a revelation of God himself. We know it to be true. And so he arrives in the middle of this feast. And it served, this feast, as a reminder of the 40 years that the Jews spent in the wilderness. It's a reminder of that deliverance out of Egypt and the 400 years of slavery that took place, and that, that journey they went through over 40 years of being in the wilderness. You see, every year, God's people were reminded of God's provision in that wilderness, how God fed them, how he kept them, and eventually led them into the promised land that he had in store for them. And so there was a lot of eating, there was a lot of drinking, there was a lot of dancing to commemorate God in this event. They would set up these, these tent-like structures and that, you know, you can get a sense of their, their, their illustrating what it was like in the wilderness that they would set up these tents. They would put palm branches on other claws, and they would literally live in these things for like a whole week in order to commemorate some of the stuff that was going on there. And so it was instituted as a celebration and a reminder of God's provision for them in the desert. Every day during this week-long ceremony, and this is, this is the tradition that was taking place, 
as Jesus arrived, the priest would take this golden cistern, and this would, this would happen on a daily basis, and he would walk it over to the Pool of Siloam, which is about 1,000 feet away from the altar, and he would fill up this golden cistern, and he would bring it back to the temple. And there he would lift this cistern up. And, I, and if you read about it, this is a very exciting uh, place to be. A lot of the leaders would say, you are not enjoying the full joy of this week unless you experience this event where the priest holds the, the cistern up and everybody says, lift your hands higher, lift your hands higher. And like this, this group of people just excited, seeing this water being lifted up and he would pour the water out and he would read out of Isaiah chapter 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I mean, what a wonderful thought to know that God has salvation in mind. That there's this washing, there's this cleansing and pouring of water that's taking place, a representation of the Spirit himself being poured out on Israel. And there's just this wonderful excitement. And there's a twofold purpose for this pouring out of water. First, it had this historical relevance as it pointed back to that provision in the wilderness, this physical thirst that they, they experienced in a very real way, I'll have you know. In Israel, this pure and available water it was a very scarce supply. I mean, we're, we're very fortunate in this country to have water supply all around us. It's clean. It's available. That wasn't always the case. And so if you put yourself in their shoes, water is a very valuable, uh, you know, commodity in that culture. And if you think about this idea of physical thirst, it's probably one of the most powerful driving forces in the human will. It's one of the most powerful forces we can experience. I mean, almost all other drives, think about this, even food we can set aside. But you can set aside alcohol. You can set aside chocolate, right, if you, if you don't want to eat chocolate for a week. But when we talk about water, that's one of those things in, in life that when you get real thirsty, it's just in an entirely different category altogether, most of us have never really experienced what it's like to be as thirsty as some of these folks were in the wilderness. And if you know what real thirst is like, then you, you know that you can't think of anything else. Only water is on your mind. And I'm not talking about just this mild interest in water either, you know, the kind that, that wets your mouth. I'm talking about this burning, consuming passion to get water. I mean, this is what you need to live. If a man has never been serious about anything in his life and he is thirsty, he will be serious about getting water. I mean, we're so serious about getting water that when water is not in view, we make up water. You know these stories of people being in the desert and drinking sand. If you're not going to give me water, at least I'll make it up in my mind in order to satisfy this desire to have water. And this is the kind of thirst. This is the kind of consuming thirst that motivated the Israelites in the wilderness when they cried out to Moses in desperation, saying, give me water. Exodus chapter 17 and verses 1 to 17 records this. They were in the desert, and record, it records for us, it tells us there was no water to drink. So put yourself in the place of those Jews at that time. You're thirsty, and it, this, this consuming passion for water is now taking root. And Moses is the one that brought them out of Egypt where there was once water. And so they start to grumble and complain. And they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And they grumbled to Moses that it might be better if they were back in Egypt. In other words, can you just take us back? At least we had water when we were in slavery. 
So they recalled the times when even in their incarceration, at least they had that water. And Moses went so far to say that the people were close to stoning him. And so Moses did what I think every person should do in this moment. He, he cried out to God for help and sought his advice. And he was given instruction from God to smite a rock. And so Moses did that. And I believe he did this in fierce anger. This is just me now. I think Moses did this in fierce anger. I think he took that staff and that rod and he struck that rock. And out of that rock came water. Rivers of water came out of that rock. And it flowed in all directions, and the thirst of God's people was satisfied that day. And so as the priest would pour this water out of the cistern, the people would be reminded of God's provision during that time when they were desperate for water, and that rock was struck, and out of that rock came rivers of water that would sustain them as they wandered around in the wilderness. And so there's this illustration, this graphic picture of this historical significance that pointed back to the wilderness. And not only a historical significance, but a prophetic significance as well. Each day of the festival, as that water was being pulled up, as that water was being poured out, God's people would be reminded that there will be a day when eventually God would come and he would satisfy not just the physical thirst, but he would satisfy the thirst of the soul. You'd find things like in prophecies like this in the pages of Isaiah 55 where Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And in Ezekiel chapter 47, there's another graphic illustration of, of the temple. And there's water that's flowing outside, out of that temple in all directions. It speaks of a, the Dead Sea and how the water is going to run into the Dead Sea and it's going to make it come to life. It's going to become fresh water. There's going to be an abundant supply of fish. There's going to be people fishing. And this temple that has water pouring out in all directions is going to become the source of life for everything that's around it. So there's this prophecy, this image that one day there would be rivers of living water coming out of that temple, a representation of God's spirit being poured out on everybody who comes to Christ. This is the backdrop. This is the context by which Jesus is now at that feast and at that temple he knows that everybody, everybody thirsts for spiritual water. Psalm 42 and verse 1 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? You see, it's not just this mild interest in water that we come to Christ. But it is a desperate need that no other man can fulfill apart from him. We come with this consuming, longing passion that's been stemmed from a vacated God. Soul satisfaction is not possible for anyone unless one is directed by one consuming passion, and that passion is nothing less than God. Are your thoughts consumed by God? 
I mean, not a week goes by where I, I just, my thoughts, they're, just, they're consumed by the things that God is doing, where he would want God's people, where God's children are lacking, where I'm lacking, where God can be moving, and there's potential that's like beyond anything we know. And I feel like we're right here. And so there's this consuming passion for seeing God move in all directions. This is the intentionality of Christ. And I wonder if there aren't those here this morning who thirst for him like this. He perfectly engineered the timing of his arrival for this feast. He risks arrest to coincide with this crucial feast to offer a most wonderful invitation, a most glorious invitation for soul thirst satisfaction. It is in this context that Jesus now brings to us the invitation. Look with me at verse 37. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. You see, when you teach in that culture, you sit and you teach. And there's seven days of lifting the water up, pouring it on the altar, this reminder of God's provision, this reminder that God is going to come and move And it's on this last day now, the solemn assembly of God's people. It's quiet. And Jesus stands up, and he makes himself visible to everybody who's there. And he cries out. You know, and this is no small cry. This is is the cry that's described of a person who lost their child. says, he cried out. He stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, he says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Tell me that isn't relevant to what's going on with this feast. What a glorious invitation of our God and King. Not only did he invite those men He invites you. There was a time where God came into your life through the mouths of babes, inspired by our work of the Holy Spirit, to invite you, in a very personal note, into his kingdom. Do you hear the words of your Savior cry out? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. These are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, As if to say, is there anyone out there? Anyone at all? Hear the voice of Jesus say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that rock that was struck in the wilderness, the source of living water that is spoken about in the wilderness, that is Christ. He's saying, I am that rock. And how can we know for sure that he is that rock? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus is that messianic rock that was struck down in the wilderness. He was struck down for you and me. And more than that, he offers spiritual living water that can satisfy not just the physical thirst, but soul-quenching, satisfying thirst. Jesus says, I am the source of the water of life. I am the rock that was punished before the water flowed out of it. I am the source of soul satisfaction. I am the Messiah. I am the giver of the Spirit. 
He says, I am the ultimate temple of God from which streams of living water flow. I am the substance of the ceremony that is taking place between your very eyes that's being celebrated for centuries. He's finally arrived. Jesus offers nothing less than soul-quenching, life-giving water which satisfies the soul. He comes to me and he says, come and drink. You see, God wants you to drink, so drink. Notice he says, if anyone thirsts, anyone, let him come to me and drink. You see, there's this invitation that's both broad. He says, if anyone, anyone out there, if you thirst, he says, let him on a very personal note, you come drink. It begs the question, who are those that are thirsty that Jesus has in mind here? And I think the answer to that question was already answered earlier in chapter 4. And so I just want to take you back there very briefly, John chapter 4. The story of the woman at the well. You see, there's a lot of similarities between what Jesus is offering here and what Jesus offered to the woman on a very personal note. It says in John chapter 4 that as Jesus made his way to Galilee, he had to travel through Samaria. He had to, it says. Like, and it's, it's not just any had. This is like a compulsive, almost moral act. Like he was compulsed to go through Samaria. And if you know anything about that culture, the Jews didn't touch that area because there was this tension between this, this mixed breed of Jews that, that took place when they intermingled with the Gentiles and the Jews themselves. And so there was this contention, this ethnic tension between Samaria and the Jews. And so if they wanted to get to Galilee, they would actually go all the way around to get to Galilee. And it says here, Jesus had to travel through Samaria. Why? Was it because he needed to avoid the Pharisees? Well, I don't think so, because in John chapter 7, this very chapter we're in, it says, and they didn't arrest him because his time wasn't yet. <laughs> you know, God has full control. They, if he doesn't want to get arrested, he won't get arrested. It's that simple. But he did make his way to Galilee, and I don't think he went and made his way through Samaria because it was the shortest distance either. I think he had to make his way through Samaria because there was a divine personal appointment that Jesus had with this woman. And I want you to think about the implications of this. The creator of the world, Jesus himself, three years of ministry, very limited. He doesn't have much time. Okay, if you're a businessman and you, you think you're limited in time, I got news for you. Jesus had three years to get the word out. He did it marvelously and wonderfully. And he shows up at the well, listen to this, early. The creator of the universe, who's got everything in his control, who's got three years of ministry to get the word, the truth of Jesus out, shows up at the well early. For this woman, who then shows up, I can't imagine what heartfelt love Jesus must have had for this woman when she showed up. And he must have been thinking, so this is it. She's the one. She has no idea that he's the Messiah at this point. No idea. And Jesus offers her the most wonderful. So she comes to draw water out of this well, thinking that she's going to get that physical thirst met, only to walk out with, with spiritual thirst being met. Listen to this. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Does that sound familiar? The man said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Right? He doesn't even have a pail to draw water with. How are, you, how are you supposed to give me living water? You don't even have the basics figured out from her perspective. Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself. And, well, yeah, he is greater than Jacob. He's God. See, she doesn't know this, though. She's got this limited perspective of who Jesus is. And remember John. Remember the purpose of John is to make Jesus known. And that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. So she has no idea. So her mind, her thoughts, her worldview is now being oriented to the Son of God. Where do you get that living water? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, this woman was coming day by day with this pail to, to fill her pots with water, and there's this graphic picture, mind you, this graphic picture of all of us who come day by day, this wearing task of filling the water pail, to drink of that water, only to find that you're going to get thirsty again and again and again. And Jesus takes this physical water and he starts to twist it into a spiritual water. Who is it that thirsts? Everyone and anyone. You see, though we all drink from the wrong well, Jesus offers us spiritual water. Whoever drinks of this water, he says, will be thirsty again. You see, Jesus has penned it in his own words. Every well men turn to seeking to gratify the emptiness of their soul. Every well that's left by a vacated God will never, ever, ever find soul satisfaction. You can search day and night. You can draw from every well that's out there. If the source is not Jesus Christ, it will fall short every time. Because this is what is at the root of unfulfillment, hopelessness, discontentment, dissatisfaction. It is a soul which continues to operate restlessly because of the pains that are left by a vacated God. Jesus says, drink of this well and you will be thirsty again. What well were you drawing from, as it were, when you encountered Jesus? See, there are wells that people draw from continually, only to find that it will never satisfy. You see, in the case of this woman, she attempted to satisfy her soul thirst through the well of immorality, sensuality. And we know this because Jesus made it known. That's right, you don't have the husband. You have had five husbands, essentially just calling her out on it. This woman is jumping from one marriage bed to another, thinking somehow her soul thirst might get satisfied through that act of immorality. He says, whoever drinks of this well shall be thirsty again. This is true now in our day as much as it was back then. You see, Jesus' voice is true, and it exposes the lies of those who say, satisfy your thirst with sensual pleasures. Again and again, this woman went to this well, only to find that her rest was never, her thirst was never satisfied. Do you hear the words of Christ in the context of this woman? She tried that well, and her thirst was unquenched. It was unsatisfied. Many in our day are longing to find that well. I mean, many scheme evil plans, and they post it like billboards in the sky, and they say, if you want soul satisfaction, this is how you get there, through sexual immorality, through sensuality. 
Some cannot wait to forfeit the soul just to experience the lust of that flesh only to find that their life ends in sad misery. Jesus stands at that well and he says to all who draw from it, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. There are those who go to the well of entertainment, you know, those beautiful things and the distractions of life, and they say it's in the excitement of the urban life that we'll find satisfaction. That's where you're going to find music and arts and aesthetics, those things that provide soul satisfaction. They argue that these things transcend culture and are good to satisfy. And maybe it's the anticipation of the next movie or the next book in a franchise. Jesus stands at that well and he says, anyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. And then there are those who say, no, 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 it's not in the urban lifestyle that you're going to find it. It's in the country life. I, genuinely, I have friends who say that. They say we were meant to live in the country life, <laughs> as if that's going to bring some level of satisfaction. You just got to get that dirt in your nails, you know, live in remoteness and uh, away from the rest of the world. And if Paul is any example, we know that's not true. Paul targeted big cities, mind you. He actually went to the big cities. He found the synagogue. He, he preached the gospel to leave that synagogue, and then a church is born. Corinth is a really good example of a, of a church that Paul had a great love for. Others look to the well of recreation, sports, and glamour. And I've given away too much of myself now, but we just celebrated Super Bowl, didn't we, as a nation? I just, this stuff just, it just, anyway, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I'm going to make some enemies out of some of you. Some of you put too much of your identity in sports. I can't tell you how many times, I'm just going to share this and I'll be done, okay? I can't share with you how many times I've showed up in a congregational setting to find a grumble, grumpy, grumble, disgruntled Christian. And I ask him, what's going on? And they're like, those stinking Seahawks. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable, some of the things that, that uh, I hear coming out of the mouths of my brothers in Christ, okay? I just I'd want to recognize that. And it's not, um, it's not through fanfare. It's not through seeking competition that we find that soul satisfaction. And if those things fail, maybe it's going to be the fame and fortune. Maybe I just need to get money. Maybe I just need to be seen, you know, whatever it takes in order to, to satisfy the soul. And this amounts to nothing but futility and vanity, and it contributes nothing, zero. You're still baseline. You haven't gained anything by way of soul satisfaction. And Jesus says, come to this well, and you will be thirsty again. And then there's a well of worldly wisdom, sciences, and philosophies. And I, I don't have time to go through all these things, but it's, it's the one that says it's through mental prowess. It's intellectual integrity that you come to this soul satisfaction. They say, turn up the PhDs. Turn up the philosophies of our world. And that's where you'll find soul satisfaction. And Jesus says, come to that well, and you will be thirsty again. And there are many other wells we can draw from, but there is one more worth mentioning it is the most deceptive well to the Christian, in my opinion. One that we all must be cautious of. It's the well of religion. It's the well that suggests fulfillment can come by virtue of a false system of religion. The God of morality, the God of good works, the God of charity, the God of liturgy, the God of service, 
right? This mentality that in order to meet soul satisfaction, you just must go and do and do and do and do. You know what I like to say? That's doo-doo. <laughs> Funny story there, but I'm just... God never made religion to meet soul thirst. Now, I'm not saying those things in themselves are bad, right? But it becomes a means to an end for some people. That religion is where it's at. But religion is only intended to be the framework by which we lift our praises to God. True religion. Well, pick any other will. The inevitable outcome is just more and more and more soul thirst. It just seems to never end. You see, people want only what God can offer. They just don't want God. Jesus stands over every other well and says, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. So why? Why test the Lord when he has spoken these things to be true? Where do I get this water? Roll back to me to John chapter 7, verse 37. He says, if any thirst, let him come to who? To me. If, you're, if you want to know where you find soul thirst satisfaction, you found it in no one less than Jesus Christ. Water that satisfies a soul has at its exclusive source, no other source, the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Anything that God gives of himself by way of soul satisfaction, he gives exclusively through Jesus Christ as revealed through the scriptures. Not just any not the Jesus Christ that some of our society makes up. This is the Jesus Christ of the scriptures we're talking about. Not through rituals, not through various forms of organizations, not through virtue signaling, not through churches, not through man-made doctrines, not through emotions. He gives us water through the living, glorified, exalted, holy one, Jesus Christ. If you do not have firsthand, genuine dealings with Jesus himself, you have never, ever experienced soul satisfaction. It is only through him. You can be so close to him and yet be as far away as you can be. You can be among God's people who have tasted the soul giving life of Jesus and be so far away from him and think that you're there, but you're not. There is no saving virtue apart from the direct living contact with the Jesus of the scriptures. What a marvelous and intentional invitation of Jesus Christ and he invites all of us today. And what can we expect to receive when we drink this water? Look now, at, this brings me finally to the impact. What is it that you can expect to receive when you drink of this water? Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I might have expected him to say like he did with the women, if he thirsts, let him come and drink and he'll be satisfied and that's good enough for me. But no, there's more to this story now. It's a river that flows up and out. It boils up, as it's put, and it flows out in all directions. There's this overflowing of a plurality of rivers in view. He's essentially saying, if you're thirsty, come, drink, and you will also take part in offering that same living water to others around you. How do I know when someone's soul thirst is satisfied? I just simply have to observe and see the impact that they have on others around them. We've all seen a pond that holds water without flow, right? It's, it's just a stagnant, filthy, nasty thing. 
It becomes so old and filthy, it's almost more poisoning to drink out of it than it is to sustain life. Now contrast that to a river of constant flowing water. There's this fresh, sparkling, clean water that's being abundantly provided to its surrounding, and it brings life, doesn't it? I mean, Paul tells us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have all we need to operate within God's kingdom today. We are to be like those overflowing rivers, and I hope you see that you cannot overflow unless you yourself are full. But if there are river banks that are full, it generates more life. Jesus tells us that the only way to save your life is to lose it. And to lose it means to give it away in service to Christ and in service to others. What impact are you having on other people? Would you describe yourself as one who's overflowing? Perhaps this is why some of us are not receiving the blessing that we expect, because we're only half full ourselves, and we haven't been drinking from the source. Some of us haven't been seeking Jesus out in faith, and we should be, and there's just simply not enough water to overflow. You're dried up. Sometimes we get too wrapped up with ourselves. We don't even think enough about others, and we need to come for a drink from the source which satisfies. I mean, what a marvelous and wonderful reality that Jesus offers for us. And I want you to consider with me for a moment what this can look like in the life of a Christian, okay? Because Jesus offers us this vivid imagery. Because it doesn't end there, because it gets even better. And I'm going to end on this eternal note. Okay? This is, this is the, the internal impact that you have on others around you, whether it's a brother or sister in Christ or whether it's an unbeliever who needs to come to know Christ. It is impossible unless you have that eternal helper, the Holy Spirit. John provides insight into what Jesus meant about the rivers of living water. He says in verse 39, Now this he said about who? The Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And there's some talk about what that means. Like at what point is Jesus glorified that this is offered so freely? Well, there are some who say it's in his living, right? He came and he lived with the fullness of glory. Like we beheld his glory in his grace and truth. And then there are those who say it's on the cross. We saw the glory of God being presented. And then there are those who say it's in the ascension of Jesus Christ in that glorious moment, right, at Pentecost. And to that I would say yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> You see, the fullness of that glory was experienced in, in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. And what he's saying is this is pointing. These living waters, the very act of this outpouring of the rivers, it occurs at that point when someone is baptized into the church. You become one with Christ, and the permanent indwelling spirit now resides in you. What an amazing assertion of our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Well, what do we say about the Holy Spirit, though, before that time? Right? Was he not operating at that point? Well, clearly he was. We see it in the life of David. We see anybody who comes to know God in faith, we know, occurs because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But there's now this outpouring, this promise that Ezekiel has been speaking to that we all now get to experience as God's chosen people. What a marvelous age and time it is to live. What a marvelous age it is to know Christ. Without him, we dry up, and there is no overflowing. And it's not about how much I can hold personally. It's about how much I can give out. And who is it that enables us to give this kind of living water? Well, it's God, the Holy Spirit. 
we see this happening together. The Father and the Son, they send the Holy Spirit in this powerful and complete way to accomplish the work of the Son. And if I were to summarize the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in just one short sentence, it would be this. He takes the work of the Son and he applies it in fruition to you. He takes the work of the Son, everything you see of Jesus Christ, his, his, his ministry here on earth, God grants you the Holy Spirit so that you yourself can bring fruition in the same way that the Son has done. Now with that, I want you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. And I want, I just, as you, as you, with your heads bowed and in an attitude of prayer, I just want you to imagine with me a desert. Imagine a dry, barren desert. Everywhere you look is dried up, and all you see are the sand dunes. There's no water in sight. It's a place where there is very little rain. And now in that desert, there's a spring of water. Water that is there now all year round, bubbling up. You'll never see such a spring in the desert by itself because it will always be surrounded by something. Maybe it's green grass, maybe it's trees, flowers, crops, fruitfulness in the desert. The spring then overflows and it soaks into the surrounding soil. It goes beyond itself and it brings fruitfulness to the dry land that's around it. And when you see the palm trees and the bushes and the grass, you say there is a spring that makes the ground fertile and fruitful. That could be a picture of your life or mine. A life that brings blessing to the people around it. Those who know you are changed. And those who are changed by knowing you. They are helped. New life comes out of them because of your influence. You bring healing or fertility growth. Joy in the workplace, maybe in your community. And because of that spring of living water, the world is a better place because of Christ in you, the one from whom all blessings flow. Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, verse 3 to 4, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams go on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. And number 6, 24 to 26 says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. Father, we thank you for your love. There was a moment in every soul who has come to believe you as Lord and Messiah, the one who brings eternal life, by which we received a personal invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself by the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be a people who have rivers of life flowing out of us in all directions. And, and if we're not, Lord, may we come to the source which satisfies so freely the soul. We thank you for your provisions to us through Jesus Christ, none other than the one to whom we pray. It's in his name. Amen.